If, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, um, then you know that we're, and you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we've been working our way through the story of Ruth. And um, we're going to pick that up in chapter 3. Uh, Ian was preaching last week on the second chapter um, about the way that God sort of brings things together, really. And uh, we're going to pick up on chapter 3. The story so far is that this little immigrant family that left Bethlehem because of a famine and went to a place called Moabite, uh, Moab rather, um, settled there. And I think they expected they would just be able to go there for a few uh, years perhaps to escape the famine. But the famine went on longer than they might have imagined. And after 10 years, their little family... Um, Naomi and Elimelech um, and their two boys had grown into adults and uh, they'd married. And uh, they'd married uh, two women from Moab, one called Orpah. And uh, this is like, I don't know if I said this at the time. I've said it somewhere. I can't remember where I've said it. But um, Orpah is what Oprah Winfrey's parents wanted to call her. It's so close. Um, but when dad went to the register office, just switched so it became Oprah instead of Orpah. There you go. I, interesting. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, I think I've said enough this morning now. And um, Orpah and Ruth. And uh, the two fellas died. And Naomi's husband died. The famine in, in Bethlehem came to an end and they went back home. So they made a long journey back to Naomi's home place. But she came back without a defender, without anybody to look after her, without anybody to care for her. And two women, two widows, trying to carve out a life when at the time, if you were a widow, you were at the bottom of the rung of the ladder. And what does it mean to find hope where you're absolutely hopeless? And uh, last week, as I said, um, there was, it just so happened that Ruth, who was uh, sent out to glean in the field, that's like the lowest of the low jobs, really. But it just so happened that she ended up in a field that belonged to Boaz, who was part of the extended family. And we pick the story up in chapter three. One day, so there's, there's a gap in the story, the narrator's giving you a clue. There's a gap between chapter two and chapter three. This is not a quick story. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. 
in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. Reasonable question, I would have thought. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you're a family guardian or a kinsman redeemer, your Bible might say. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I'm a family guardian, kinsman, redeemer, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your family guardian, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here till morning. So she lay at his feet till morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, till you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. It's a great little story. It's very visual. I hope you can see it. It kind of does raise, it's almost comic. It does raise questions. It does make, make you wonder, Naomi, was that a good thing to do? Um, and, um, and yet... When I think the first time I did this, the first week or one of the first weeks, I talked about this idea that in the book of Ruth, you have people who are in real need. But what you don't have is a story of God doing miracles. It's not a miracle book. It's a story of how God uses providence, how God brings things together almost behind the scenes, how God puts things in the right place at the right time with the right people. And what you do have are people who are making decisions and trying to make the best decision in really a complex situation. And I think in that sense, it's much closer to the life you and me normally lead. Most of our lives, many of us, if we had the time and space, and maybe one day we will, we could just sort of have a conversation between ourselves. So when have you seen the miraculous hand of God? And lots of us would have stories about that. But actually, the more normal thing is, whenever you had to make decisions and you've not been sure whether the decisions have been right, but you took the decisions the best you could and actually something new started and you were surprised. That seems to be the norm. That actually God says, I'll give you my spirit and I'll give you wisdom and I'll give you insight. Now you go, you make the decisions you want to make. We believe that God does intervene. We do believe, all of us again, the miracles and the moments where God says, okay, do this, do that, do the other. And the Bible's full of them too. We're getting to Christmas. And in the Christmas story, it's about angels and dreams and people being told what to do and where to go. And we believe in that. And lots of us would say, we've had experience of that. But the danger is, if you think that's the only way God works, that can leave you paralyzed. When it doesn't seem quite so clear, 
where you're going, well, what should I do? There's a best-selling book that's called this, Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, or How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc. I think you kind of know what the book's about. <laughs> and I think that's, I mean, it's a, it was a very smart move on someone's part to write that. But when you start talking about, well, what is God's will? Actually, by default, most of us go, well, it'll, it'll involve a dream or a vision or a fleece or an impression or an open door or a random Bible verse or a casting lot or... I'll feel something. And actually, this little part of the Bible suggests something different. How do you know what's going on? What have Naomi and Ruth learned so far in the story? They found two things. Firstly, Naomi, surprisingly to her, found that she hadn't been abandoned. She came home. Do you remember in that first chapter, she comes back and she says to the town, they go, it's Naomi. And, they, and she said, don't you dare call me Naomi. I'm changing my name. Call me bitter. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the loss. So don't you tell me life's good. I'm going to be known as Bitter. And bit by bit, day after day, moment by moment, choice by choice, Naomi discovers something, and it's this. She's not been abandoned. She's not been abandoned. The second thing they discover is things start to work out. It just so happened. When Paul writes in the New Testament to uh, workers, he includes in Ephesians a couple of verses to the people who were at the bottom of the pile. Serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're a slave or free. This is not to people who had power. This is to people who had no power. He said to those people... You need to serve wholeheartedly for the serve wholeheartedly the Lord. And sometimes that sounds great when everything's going well. But it's actually when things are not going well that you have to ask yourself, have I been abandoned? And actually, can I still serve the Lord in the context I'm in when it's not what I would want? And the picture we pick up in Ruth is where things are not ideal. So what I want to do is say something about life. I want to say something about the three characters, and then I want to ask you a question. That's where I'm going. This is the bigger picture. I believe that our everyday decisions get written into God's big story. That's a big statement, but I believe that for those of us who serve the Lord who surrendered to him for those who are part of the kingdom, our everyday decisions get written into God's big story. 
Now, it doesn't feel like that every time. And in fact, you won't see the outcome of all those decisions. But you can let the decisions be shaped by the gospel story. I'm coming to the end of this 13 years of working with LICC. And uh, I finish in a couple of weeks' time. So I'm now on the meals round. It's <laughs> <is> fantastic. <laughs> Should have left earlier. <laughs> I'm on the meals rounds. I'm also in that period, and some, lots of you will have experienced this when you come into the end of a job, where people now tell you the difference you've made. Is that, you know that feeling? Lots of you will have had that. Because you, you come to an end of a job, and now they go, I never told you, but. And you, you kind of get to the stage where you go, well, had you told me, I'd have stayed. Um, <laughs> but it's that, it's that moment. And so take comfort. If that's happened to you, take comfort. Because what they tell you about are the small things and the conversations and the incidental things that you didn't know mattered, that they said it really mattered. Because when they tell you those things, the nice thing is you go, really? I'm now learning. I, first I would go, I'm not sure I did. No, 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 I probably did. It's, they say nice things. And they say, you made a difference. Happened to me last week. Woman said, four years ago you said something, changed my practice, God's done some amazing things. Had I not been leaving, I would have never have known. I think that's what eternity will be like for you and I. I think that's what eternity will be like. I think the result of eternity, of a life lived faithfully in the ordinariness of life, what will happen in eternity is people will come for the first thousand years and tell you, <laughs> you probably never realized. I actually, I mean, I'm guessing, and it is massive guess, and I don't know if I'm right, but I do wonder whether in eternity, one of the things that will become clear is, so that's what my life was about. So that's why it mattered. So that's why I was here. And it won't be because of what you thought. You'll come with your own, Lord, did you know when I did that? And you'll go, yeah, well, that's fine. That was fine. But actually, you never realized. Your everyday decisions get written into God's big story. You won't see the outcome, but let your decisions be shaped by the gospel story. Let's look at the text. So the first person I want to think about is Naomi. That's a picture of her. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided. Now, Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there till he's finished. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Uncover his feet, lie down. He'll tell you what to do. She does three things. She creates a new possibility for Ruth. 
you remember in the first chapter, <clears throat> Naomi's got these two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And she says to both of them, you go back. And they go, no, 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 no. No, go back. No, 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 no. And we talked about that in the first sermon. Of, you know, was that a good thing or a bad thing? Or was she just going, I don't want you with me. But certainly by this stage, Naomi is saying, I have a responsibility for you. I want to create a new possibility. Now, the moment that she does that, the moment that Naomi says to Ruth, I'm going to find you a home. Now, let me bracket. This is in that culture at that day. The only way a woman could actually find security of the future was actually being in a marriage context. It's not that that's the only way God ever can do it. It's not sort of like, yes, you've got to be, and if you're not, it's not. But it's like, in that culture, that was the norm, close bracket. But when Naomi says to Ruth, I want you to have a new future, what she's saying about herself is, I'll become dependent. She creates a new possibility for Ruth that will cause her to be dependent. She takes a well-founded risk. This strategy is well-founded. It's a risk, but it's well-founded because she knows Boaz. She's sort of, she trusts Boaz. I mean, you know, I don't think you can over-egg the shocking nature of what she's suggesting Ruth does. But she knows Boaz. Boaz knows what men are like. Because Boaz says to her in chapter 2, don't go and work in another man's field because they'll see that you're a vulnerable woman and dot, dot, dot. Boaz knows what men are like and Boaz knows you shouldn't be here. You're at risk. But leave before the men wake up. Because if they find that you've come to the bunkhouse in the middle of the night, they might think you're a certain sort of woman. But Naomi takes a well-founded risk on Boaz and offers creative guidance. She's aware that she needs to provide a future for Ruth. She knows it's difficult. Who wants a Moabite woman in Bethlehem? You're an outsider. You're a foreigner. You're an immigrant. You come here, you take our grain. <laughs> who wants a woman like that? A woman who's been married before, a woman who's childless. Who wants a woman like that? This is not easy. It's almost like that need to square the circle. It seems impossible. What might God do? You got Naomi. Can you hear that? And then you got Ruth. And Ruth, what's Ruth going to do? She's going to break out of her widowhood. But she's also going to reopen her own past. She becomes vulnerable. In verse 14 of that chapter, uh, she lies at his feet till morning. She gets up before anyone could be recognized. And Boaz says, no one must know a woman came to the threshing floor. I've talked about that. She risks public embarrassment. She's daring. This is the daring bit. Well, actually, let me get through it. She's prepared to rip up conventions. She creates a new future. Now, the last three. What's the daring nature she does? Naomi tells her exactly what to do. Naomi says, go, uncover his feet, lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. And Naomi does that, but she adds something in. 
So in verse 9, Boaz wakes up. There's a woman. Who are you? I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. You're a family guardian. You're the one in our family that actually could care for our family. You're the one that actually could create a new future. In asking Boaz to spread the corner of his garment, she is proposing marriage. That's what that means. So Ruth is no fey, weak woman. Ruth, I, I kind of, wow, that's a bit bold. Ruth, you won't define me by who I've been. Ruth, I'm going to rip up conversation, uh, conventions. I'm going to create a new prospect. And then Boaz, it was night, which is why we could only get half of his picture of his face. He listens. He's not defensive. And he doesn't take offense. He allows Ruth to invade his life. He'll risk his reputation and protect Ruth's reputation. And he's willing to sacrifice his own future. So here's my question. These three people, God's at work creating a new, bigger future than any of them could have guessed. All three of them are faced with ordinary problems. And all three of them decide that they're going to respond in ways that go well beyond their own needs. Naomi, she's probably the one with most to lose here. And she says, I've got a responsibility for you. I want to help you create a new future. And so a new future begins. For Ruth, Ruth could have just said, yes, that's what I need. I, I, just, need, I just need to be married. I'd, I'll, take any, I'd take anything because I need security. But Ruth says, I've got a responsibility for you, Naomi. So I'm going to name the kinsman redeemer. I'm going to put that at risk because you need a future too. And Boaz? Boaz is the one who allows people to invade his life and risks everything that they might have a future. <coughs> I think what happens to most of us is when we're most under pressure or when we're most anxious or when we're most fearful of the future, what happens is we, it arcs inward into our own selfish nature. And what you've got going on in this story is it arcs outward to something bigger than it might have been. And a new story begins that's much bigger than it would have been if they'd just been looking after themselves. Someone who's got the courage to take the first step. Someone who's got wisdom to create a new story. Someone who's got generosity in responding. 
So who's in your life? You know, just think it through for a minute. Think about the people that are around you and your family. And how do you make decisions about how you respond to them in ways that are not just defensive, but in ways that create a new future? Because sometimes, particularly perhaps with extended family, we get to a place where we just need to almost close some things down. Whereas actually here, a story is of something opening up wide. But it costs. You might think about people in your workplace. And the demands they make on you. And in that context, it's really easy sometimes for it all to close down. Whereas actually, it could be that a whole new future opens up. One of, uh, one of the people I, I met in America and on a number of occasions now is a, um, a black uh, woman called Ruth who uh, works in HR uh, in one of the suburbs of Boston. And she just, she's quite remarkable in many, many ways and loads of stories about her. But this one's pertinent here. She said part of her job is to interview people. And when she's interviewing people, because she's interviewing people for all sorts of, sort of grades of, of position, she says, I'm asking God, which is the person that I can provide a new future for here? She said, because I've got people coming for some cleaning jobs and for really bottom of the, bottom of the range jobs who've got checkered histories at the best. She says, and I'm wanting to pray, how can I be redemptive in this situation? And so before she starts, the interview, she has to do it, you know, legally and properly and all the rest of it with charts and tick boxes. But she's asking for God to say, which is the redemptive one. And some of you are in similar situations or some of you are in situations where you're dealing with a lot of people. And actually it's asking God, what's the redemptive story that could begin in their lives if I had eyes to see? What's it mean in church? We who sit next to each other week by week. What's it mean to be the ones who for one another go, actually we can open up a whole new story. It might cost us, we might need to risk some things, we might need to give some advice that sounds ridiculous, but actually it could just open up a whole new story. It's the model, isn't it? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What Paul does is he takes a hymn, that they probably sang regularly and says, that's what I want us to be like. Like Naomi, like Ruth, like Boaz, like Jesus.
What are you thinking? Anything? Nothing? What's, what goes through your mind? I'm kind of just wanting to make sure that I've communicated as clearly as I can, but what was going through your mind? What's the challenge? What's the opportunity? Hang on, we'll give you a microphone and then... The challenge to not conform. Um, I think it's very easy to see something that needs to be done or a path that needs to be trodden and just walk the path that has been laid before you. But actually, unconvention, um, thinking outside the box, um, taking a moment and actually being bold and brave and courageous in that because yeah. it does take you to do those things in order to, I guess, progress, go forward, make a mark. What does it mean to be that? Yeah, just to be... In a sense, just give enough space so that you might might discern what God wants to do in that space. Somebody else, what were you thinking? What comes to mind? How does it relate? Um, I think I think we can be the answer uh, to each other's <coughs> prayers a lot of the time. Yeah. If we really knew um, what what issues we had, mm. so there's a risk of being vulnerable. But we also need to show ourselves willing to listen and and and, uh, and and take care of one another. Yeah. And if we had that, maybe we we more able to support one another, and and the yeah. Lord can guide us to those that we can help and or who can help us. I think in the story, I think the the, the shift happens in a sense. The the pivot of the book of Ruth is actually Naomi. And it's the way Naomi reacts to her own past. So in chapter one, you have a sort of closing down the story. I am bitter. I am back, but I don't want anything to do with anybody. I want to be on my own. I want to be isolated. Don't ask me of anything. And I think the pivot of the story and what happens is as she learns something of the fact that she's not been abandoned, that the, 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 the hesed, the loving kindness of God is still there. And I think... You know, in, in response to what you're saying, Nev, it's that sort of thing of um, that we isolate ourselves when we feel that's it, that's the end of the story, and we close our own story down, but actually allowing ourselves to move, lean into an open story means that things not only get healed, but also new prospects open up. But it does take courage. Anybody else? What are you thinking? This side are doing very well. <laughs> I'm very pleased that this side are here. I'm not very pleased. <laughs> I haven't said anything yet. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> uh, it's a similar thought. In um, Boaz notices Ruth. Um, Naomi notices Boaz. Um, everybody is noticing everybody else, and they're not only focused on their own interests. Mm. Every one of them had their own reasons to just look after their own yeah. and only think about their stuff. But because they all take a look up and see what everyone else is needing and everyone else's interests. As they all help and serve each other's interests, together God can weave a picture together that harmonizes all of them into one bigger picture. Yeah. I mean, we'll get there, but um, you've got that brilliant picture where Boaz has to go home to explain to his own family that the inheritance is going to be split by someone else. <laughs> 
And that's not an easy conversation either, is it? But you're right, it's people taking notice. Anybody else? Your original point yeah. where you were saying that God uses our little plans for his mm. big plan, basically, reminds me of um, what Rob was telling me about a book he read. I want to say it was Conversations with God, where um, people, people ask... Uh, how how can God allow X, Y, Z? Mm. Uh, how is he at work in your life? And um, he was telling me that in this book, he was sort of characterised as a parent watching over his children, watching over us. We don't micromanage our children's every move, mm. how they play, mm. how they interact mm. with people, what game they choose to play, what subject they choose to do, what interests they take. But it all works for them mm. and God can oversee all of that and use all of that and use it for his glory without micromanaging every single detail and we still have to live our lives keeping an eye on him obviously and, and doing good and all of those things but we don't need to be micromanaged and and that's a that's a great phrase that God doesn't doesn't micromanage and, and the beauty of it, I think what he's doing by his spirit is he creates us into certain types of people. People in his own image, people who almost sometimes by your sort of natural response will be to do the Christ-like thing. And at other times, I think the sort of people who, you know, and it was said a moment ago when I think it was Nev or Nev and Charlie really were both saying maybe similar things, actually where you... You take notice. And, and it's a certain type of person that God is creating us to be. Because then the stuff that we offer, the stuff you do, the very ordinary stuff you do, gets woven into his, his plans and purposes. Most of us will not live a life where we've done the dramatic big thing that changed the world doesn't happen for most of us it's very handful of people that that's true of most of us live lives that go of faithfulness that go i'm offering this i'm offering this but but the important thing to remember is it, it all counts it all matters it's all important the way you turn up tomorrow morning the way you respond to your family, the way you respond to requests, the way you respond to people around you, the time you give to other people, the sense of appropriate care you offer to other people, the sense of saying, actually, I do have a responsibility here for others. It all matters. And as chapter four will suggest when we get there, a bigger story emerges than any of you could imagine and that's why I think Ruth matters. One last thing. Didn't mean to say this, but anyway, there we go. So it's not really planned out. And it's actually too early to, to go into any great detail about, uh, to be honest. Um, but we're doing... Oh, now I'm worried that I've said it already. <laughs> if I've told you this, please don't go, you've already told me this. Just nod, like, like you will do at Christmas with your uncle who's repeating himself. <laughs> We're doing this piece of research 
um, with Elam churches, a number of Elam churches, and we've got responses on a survey back from about 900 people now. I'm looking for any acknowledgement that, yes, we've heard this story. Have you, have you told, have I told this story? Yeah, that, that's it. That don't, don't, oh, brilliant. It was that. 900 people responded. The really interesting things, there's loads of interesting things that will come out, and I'll tell you what they are when, as we get them. But one of the interesting things is this. One of the questions we ask people is, do you think you're growing or not? A lot, a fair bit, not a lot. And the researcher, I don't know how this works, it's like dark arts to me, but the researcher who does all the mean and numbers, and some of you love that sort of thing, for me it's just like, Tell me the headline. She says, the headline is this. Don't, some, I'm nervous about saying this because some of you actually know how this works. I'm going to embarrass myself next. So I may use the wrong words, but the principle is this. The people who said we are not growing were the most likely to say we don't know what our purpose is. The people who say, the, the, the majority of people who said we're not growing as Christians were the ones who says, I don't know what my purpose is. Everything else was very close. There was nothing else. You know, like they read the Bible together, they, they, they went to church, they worshipped, they listened to praise tapes and all the other. We had a load of stuff that we said, what do you do? All of those didn't really make any difference. Do you know the biggest difference was? The people who go, I know why I'm here on planet Earth, were the ones who said, I'm growing, either a lot or a bit. The ones who said, I don't know why I'm here, on the whole, said, I'm not growing. Now that is fascinating. It's also fascinating because we didn't expect it. It's always nice to do research and find something that you didn't expect as opposed to what research normally is, is to prove that what you already thought was true. And it fits with this. Because knowing what your purpose is, is not having the mega plan. It's absolutely saying to one another, you matter. Your contribution matters. Your decisions matter. And it's a heart that's open to others and to God. I will tell you that again. When I tell you the next time, you can say, you told us. Shall we pray together? Do you want to come and uh, begin to lead us back in? There was an old hymn that we used to sing decades ago called Take My Life and Let It Be. Take my life and let it be. Holy consecrated Lord for thee. And then it went through a list of take my money, take my days, take my desires. And it just went through the sort of like the wholeness of an individual and said, take this and make it worth something to you. And I suppose in praying together, one of the things I'd want to pray is that our eyes would be open to those people around us. That we would be able to slow down enough to recognize who's around us and what their needs are 
I think I'd want to pray that we'd be shaped to be such a sort of person that actually we would be able to respond to what the Spirit is wanting to do in and around us. I'd want us to pray that our everyday lives, the everyday decisions will flow out of following the one who didn't think equality with God. Something to be grasped at, but took the form of a servant, lowered himself, made himself obedient to death on a cross. So let that mind be in you. Father God, guard us from the times when we curve inwards on ourselves. Guard us from the times where we become selfish. Guard us from the times where we don't take time because we're in so much of a hurry. Guard us from our cynicism. Guard us from our willingness to write people off too quickly. Guard us against bitterness that stops the story. Lord, may we follow Jesus, we pray. And I pray in the workspace. Lord, when often it's every man for himself, every woman for themselves, Lord, may we live for a bigger purpose than that. May we live and work redemptively. Lord, in our families, in our extended families, may we do well by them. We offer you our lives in the name of Jesus. Jesus.